Hey guys, how you doing today? Great to have you, yeah? Some people excited to be at church. Also welcome everybody who's joining us online, our online campus, what's up y'all? Everybody say, what's up online? What's up online? We're so glad you are all with us. Hey, uh, it's great to be back with you. Uh, didn't Desi and Mac just do a great job last weekend? Wasn't that awesome? Yeah. So hey, if you're watching for the first time or you're new here, I just wanna tell you welcome again. A couple things you need to know that we are a group of imperfect people trying to find and serve Jesus. So um, we do have a rule that there's no perfect people allowed here. Uh, and so you're in great company if you're imperfect. Also, you don't even have to believe what we believe to belong here because we're all just in our own faith journey. Uh, but we are unapologetically going to talk about Jesus and his love. So, um, and there's lots of space for us as you're gonna see even in this series. So uh, Easter is two weekends away. I don't know if that's crazy to you, it's crazy to me. So we're gonna kick off our Easter series this week. It's a three week series. And I love that we get a chance to tell this story every year. It's important to our faith to be reminded, but we get to use different creative ideas and lenses. And so um, this year, what we're gonna do is, if you maybe don't know much about the Easter story, it is the story of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, but it took place over the course of three actual human days. Um, there was a Friday was the arrest and the, and the burial and the death. Uh, Saturday is what they call Silent Saturday. Nothing happened. And then Sunday was the resurrection of Jesus. And so what we're going to do is take one week and kind of highlight each of those days in real time. Um, uh, uh, so we're going to talk about Friday tonight, uh, today, this weekend. And then tomorrow, next week, we're going to talk about Saturday. And then on Easter weekend, we'll talk about the resurrection and connect the dots. But we're also going to take it a step further. We're going to take, uh, uh, take this story through the lens of somebody who was there. Uh, and we don't need to take a lot of creative liberty because there's a lot of historical context there, but we're gonna look at these three days through the lens of Jesus's key lead disciple. His name was Peter. Jesus had 12 students, 12 disciples. Uh, but what we know of Peter historically is he was the oldest and we believe he was the lead disciple. Peter was around the age of 20 or 22. And so we're gonna look at these three days through the lens of Peter. And as we do, I believe we're gonna be able to make all kinds of connections to our life uh, as well, because I think, I just believe that we have a lot more in common with Peter than we may realize. For example, I'm gonna, I need your crowd participation here. If you're online, you can type your answer. Uh, I'm gonna show you something in a minute, and I just want you to tell me the first thing that kind of comes to mind or that memory that brings up or first word that comes to your mind when you see this. Dodgeball, kickball, anybody else? Elementary school, yes. This literally says... The playground ball. Who said out? Somebody said out. You're out. I'm out. Then somebody goes out. Yeah. Well, that's the second part because most of the time when you bring this out, we quickly kind of go to this elementary school dodgeball, kickball. Oh, fun. But if you think about it much longer than that, for many of us, it leads to pain. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the women have already come to me and said it reminds me when the guys would blast us in the face. Uh, how many of you guys were that guy? I was that guy. My philosophy as a 10-year-old, we'll just get the women out of here so we can keep the athletes on the court. Now, listen, I'm not saying that's right. It's messed up. That was 10-year-old me. Jesus is working on me. Um, so I'd go for the head, go for the face. Maybe you won't play the next game. Um, <laughs> remember, I said no perfect people allowed. I said that like three minutes ago. Uh, but for some of us, this actually represents beyond that a little bit more. It represents um, left out. It's a reminder that you were the last pick. For some people, it was, I was, if it was PE or recess, it was nobody wants Johnny, nobody wants Susie, nobody wants Edward, whatever it was. And for a lot of people, this kind of represents either I was the one, I was not good enough, I wasn't picked, uh, I was kind of last chosen. And, and, and again, I think this has that kind of context and connotation to it. And again, if that's you, um, Peter understands that. And I think we've all had, whether it was 
kickball or dodgeball in elementary school, I think everybody in this audience, everybody watching, we know what it's like to be overlooked. We know what it's like. We probably had moments where you felt like somebody else got chosen instead of you. Somebody else got it, whether it was literally kickball in elementary school or a promotion uh, at a job that you felt like you were entitled to or that you deserved, or maybe it was the, the high school prom, do you like me? Check yes, check no. Um, or, I mean, there's so many things that, that we've felt like, man, they would have picked somebody else. I, I've just been overlooked that, 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 that they would choose someone else. And if you've ever felt overlooked, or maybe you felt that your life, maybe you've kind of, if you're really, those moments were really honest going, man, I kind of hope there's more in me than what I'm getting out of myself. I hope there's a little bit more to life than what I'm experiencing right now. I'd like to think and hope somewhere, somehow, that my worst failures and regrets don't have to define and, and limit my future. Well, if anything I just said resonates with you at all, whether it's being overlooked or regrets, or, or man, I hope somewhere in there that I'm getting, I can get more out of my life than I am, you actually have a whole lot more in common with Peter, Jesus' lead disciple, than you think. And as we tell his story, and here's why I'm excited about that, I believe as we tell Peter's story, we're gonna tell our story. Because Peter's story is ultimately the story of Jesus, but it's what Jesus does, does for, and means to us when we allow him to be a part of our story. And so here's what we're gonna do today. I'm gonna tell you where we're gonna go. If we're gonna highlight Peter for three weeks, we have to have a little bit of the Peter backstory. So I'm gonna talk to you about uh, the, what it was like when Jesus chose Peter and some, some kind of details surrounding that. Then we're gonna talk about briefly, kind of a highlight reel of what it was like when Jesus followed, or Peter followed Jesus, but then we're gonna finish today, today's about Friday, with probably arguably the worst day of Peter's life, which would have been the last day of Jesus's life. And you might be thinking it's because Jesus died, but if you learn in a minute all the details surrounding and how many times Peter overreacted and blew it in his last 24 hours with Jesus, I think you're gonna identify a lot with, G with Peter and it may even give you some hope for Jesus's posture and his thoughts towards you even in the midst of your greatest fear, regrets, and failure. So, we're one of those churches that understanding the Bible is really important to us and it was written in a way so we can't understand it. So for us, we say often that to know the world of the Bible, we need, or to know the words of the Bible, we need to know the world of the Bible because we don't just wanna make the Bible say what we want it to say, but we wanna know what it actually means. So when we understand that world, when we know what's happening there and then, we can actually more appropriately and practically apply it to our lives here and now. Are you with me still? Say yeah. So we got to talk about the there and then for a minute. Somebody say there and then. Yeah. To appreciate this story, you have to understand the, the, the culture and the context in which Peter and Jesus lived in. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to give you the seven-minute abbreviated version of something I taught four years ago in 2018 in our Blueprint series. It was a five-week series. What I'm going to tell you in seven minutes, I broke down over almost 40 minutes. It's one of the most compelling things I've ever learned in my journey, and it made the Bible come alive to me. So if everything I'm going to say to you is like, whoa, I want to know more, go back on our sermon archive and look for week one of the Blueprint um, sermon series, and we may even highlight it on our social media this week. But I'm going to give you enough of it that you understand, because to, to understand how this started gives you a really great appreciation for how it went. Here's what you need to know about Peter, Jesus, and that time in history. That time in history, Peter and Jesus, they were Jews. The Jews were of the nation of Israel. There was a promise 2,500 years previous to a man named Abraham that God was gonna make a great nation. It was gonna become Israel. And through that nation, the all world would be blessed and that they were to show the world what God was like through the way they treated each other, through the way that they worshiped God, and to the way they even treated and included outsiders. They got that wrong more than they got it right, but they were God's chosen people nonetheless. Not elitists, just God's chosen people. 
And so uh, about a thousand years later, a man named Moses goes up to a mountain uh, two different times for 40 days, and God just gives him downloads. And Moses writes the first five books of what we know as the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We know it as the Pentateuch or the, or the Law of Moses. They called it the Torah back there and then. So somebody say Torah. Torah. Here's what you have to know about their culture. Their religion, their relationship with God, uh, the Torah was everything to life. It was central to their way of life. It wasn't like it is now where it's like, I'm gonna be a doctor, I'm gonna be a teacher, I'm gonna go to this college. There was only one thing that centered their education around there, and it was going to the temple, learning Torah. It was everything. And they understood if we aren't unbelievably intentional about this and passionate about it, uh, teaching it to our students and, and, and educating it, that we're one generation away from losing our culture and we're one generation away from losing our faith. So they were, their education system, the rabbinical education system uh, existed in Jesus's day. This really matters. Why? Because they wanted to be really intentional about teaching their kids Torah. So every student, they had three phases of education, kind of three sections, uh, similar to kind of what we have now, like primary, secondary, and then the, 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 the post-grad. Um, and all the boys and girls went to the first section. They have names. I'm not going to give them to you. It doesn't matter to, for the sake of this conversation. But from about age five, all of the, the students would go to the temple. They would learn from a, a priest, a rabbi, a teacher of the day. And in that day, the rabbi was the echelon of the community. They were the most prestigious. They were the most famous. They were the most honorable. Every boy wanted to be a rabbi. Every parent wanted their boy to be a rabbi. If you were a girl, it didn't matter. You were property. Wasn't right. It's how it was. Um, and so that was, that was it. Like the teachers of the law, the law was everything. The Torah was everything. And those who understood it, the rabbis were the, the experts. That was what you did. But very few people got to be that. And so all the students would go to educate because they wanted to teach them Torah. So from age six to 10, they would go to school and they would memorize the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the foundation of their faith. And so by age 10, all these boys and girls had it memorized. Now, when I say memorized, I don't mean like wrote it down and forgot it five seconds later. I mean, inside and out, they could reference Deuteronomy and Leviticus. They could connect Leviticus to, to Exodus. They could have conversations. It wasn't transfer of information education like we know. It was questions and answers and having a conversation. It was beautiful, uh, similar, somewhat similar to classical conversations, a lot of chanting, a lot of memorization, a lot of song, um, classical education. And so, uh, so that's what they went to. Now, most all students were done at age 10. The girls would go help their moms for two to four or five years, go get married and, and have kids. The boys would go ply their trade. They would go take, help their dad with blacksmith. They would go uh, help, you know, fishing or, or whatever the case was. Uh, and then they would hope they got married somebody and they hoped that they would uh, have a kid that would go be a rabbi. If you were in the few that were in the elite, kind of the best of the best, you would be handpicked or selected to go on to the second tier of schooling, uh, which for us would be more like secondary school from about age 10 to 14. There's a name for it, doesn't matter. Uh, and in that time, in Jesus's day, you would then memorize the rest of the Old Testament. So Joshua to Malachi on top of the, the, the Torah or the Pentateuch. And so for four years, you're sitting with rabbis and teachers of the law, questions and answers, questions and answers, questions and answers, and just like you were the top of the top, which is interesting because the only recollection that we know in the Bible of Jesus was when he was how old? 12. Where was he left at? The temple. What were they amazed at? His questions and answers. He was a tier, top tier student in this education system. So he's given it back and forth to the teachers of the law. Now, after that, almost everybody was done, but the best, the very select few would go on to the next, the third section, which is called Bet uh, Talmud. And from there, you were going to serve under, be a student or a disciple of a rabbi for the next 15 or 16 years. So from about the age 14 or 15 to about age 30, 
you would follow, literally learn from a rabbi. Uh, and because at 30, they would release you to go be your own rabbi and you would be acknowledged as that prestigious rabbi. But in order to get into this, um, you would have to find, and there were only usually a few, rabbi in your region that you would go apply to, seek them out, and it wouldn't be like a written application. It would be days worth of questions and answers and questions and answers. And not just do you know the Bible, not just do you love God, because that would have been a given, but here's the driving question for every single rabbi, and this you have to know. This will change the way you read the entire gospels if you've never heard this. Every rabbi would take these applicants and their driving fundamental question, the only thing they're interested in is this. Does this student have what it takes to be just like me? I'm gonna die someday, I'm old. So I need my understanding of God, my interpretation, my way of praying, forgiving and teaching to live on beyond me. So I have to be able to see within these 14 and 15 year olds, what's the one or two that if I give you 15 years of my best, that I'm confident that it will sound and look a lot like this. And so do, and so no rabbi would ever choose a disciple under, under any other premise, unless it was, I'm only choosing you with the idea that you can be like me. Now, if you go back and read Jewish articles, uh, uh, literature, let me save you some time, the mission of the Talmud. Um, every rabbi in history, except for two, one was one other guy and one was Jesus, had students come apply to them. Jesus is one of two rabbis in all of Jewish history that actually went and sought out his students. Now, why does this matter? Because in Matthew 4, we meet Peter, and there's a few details really quickly that now all of a sudden that you know what I know in the there and then super matters. Let's introduce ourselves to Peter in Matthew chapter 4, verse, uh, I believe we start in verse uh, 8. It says, it's Jesus. Okay, by the way, here's what else you need to know. Take it off. My, my bad. Take it off. Take it off. Take it off. My bad. My, that's me. That's on me. That's not me. That's not you guys. It's me. Jesus was a rabbi. We know this because of the way he taught and healed. More importantly, he would have been recognized because of the vestments or the things he wore. Uh, which, at what age did Jesus show up on the scene? 30. Interesting. And before you all come up to me and ask the same question, which is, who did Jesus follow? It's the greatest argument and question in history of the Jewish rabbinical system. No one knows, and people love to argue about it. So um, it doesn't matter for the sake of this. So Jesus shows up on the scene age 30 as a rabbi under the education system and culture of what I just told you. And now we meet Peter. Hey, let's do it, guys. Uh, it says, as Jesus, the rabbi, was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net in the lake for they were fishermen. Let me ask you a question. Why are they fishing? What weren't they doing? They weren't following a rabbi. Peter was about 22 and we believe Andrew was about 18. They weren't in Bet Talmud. They weren't following a rabbi. They weren't the best of the best. They weren't the most elite. They weren't the, the tip of the sword. They weren't the Yale and the Harvard of their time. They had been fishing. Why? They picked somebody else for kickball. They picked somebody else for the job. Somebody else had more aptitude. Somebody else had more potential. They didn't have what it took. They're fishing because they're not doing the most elite, exclusive, best thing you could do. They're fishing. I forgot to tell you one really important detail that's gonna super matter in the next verse. When you applied to a rabbi, you would get one of two responses. They would either recognize that you loved God and loved the Torah, but you didn't have what it took to be like them. So they would say, you clearly love God, you clearly love people, but you will not be a disciple of mine, go and ply your trade, which meant go help your dad run the business. Or they would say, you clearly love God, you clearly love his word, and I believe you can be like me. And so your, accept, your stamp of acceptance, there's a Hebrew word for it. I'm not gonna try to say it. I'll mess it up. 
But he would say, come, follow me. If a rabbi ever said to you, come, follow me, those specific three words, you were in. The next 15 years, you're going to follow a rabbi, and you are going to be a rabbi. You are a big deal. You are carrying on the legacy, the heritage. You know God. You are. You have made it. Jesus shows up as a 30-year-old rabbi to these teenage boys and this one guy that we think is over 20. His name's Peter, and they're fishing. Why? They're fishing because they're not following a rabbi. And what does he say to them? Hey, guys, what's for dinner? What are you using, shrimp? No, that's not what he says. Verse 19 says, Jesus said, come, follow me. And I will teach you how to fish for men. Now, in the history and the culture that I just told you, if for eight years you had settled for the less than life and a rabbi walked up to you and said, come follow me, what would your immediate reaction be? Yeah, baby, drop your nets as fast as you can and go, let's see what happens here. Oh, at once they went and followed him. Does this make a whole lot more sense now versus some like kind of creepy 30? You'll be like, where are the teenage boys who are gonna help me feel cool? I wanna relive my childhood. I'm like, that's so huge, that's messed up. But, right? I kind of always wonder, like, why'd they follow a stranger? Oh, they didn't. I mean, they kind of did, but he was a rabbi. This is the, so Peter's story starts with the overpicked, overlooked, too many mistakes, probably some characteristics that were a liability. Every rabbi, every man of God, every person who knew the word that he'd ever talked to and said, hey, can I come and be like you? Every single one of them had one response in common. No, sir. You do not have what it takes. Yet God, when he showed up on the earth to start this thing called the church that would last forever and go everywhere, he goes to the B team, the overpick, the misfits, the not good enoughs, the second string, the JV, and he's like, give me, a, give me your life and watch what I'll do with it. I will do more with you. I will do more through you. And I have plans that you know not of. You don't have to settle for this anymore. And it doesn't matter your quirks, your personality. If you give me all of you, I promise I will do more with your life than you could ever imagine. And that's exactly what happens. So we got to fast forward a little bit through what does that look? So now Jesus starts Peter starts following Jesus. Jesus didn't stop there either. He picked 11 other guys. Well, 10, because Andrew was in on it. 10 other guys, guess what else they all had in common? Every single one of them were doing something else. Every single one of them. Pastor, are you telling me that the greatest thing that's ever happened other than Jesus' crucifixion and, 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 and resurrection, that the church was started by 12 teenage bozos uh, who were not good enough B-team scrubs? That's exactly the theology I subscribe to. And for 2,000 years, in every corner of the earth, this thing called the church continues to go on. And you know how it goes on? Jesus, not physically, but by his spirit and the leading of his heart, continues to walk to people who have made too many mistakes, their personalities a liability, who've been picked over, left over, overlooked, didn't get the promotion, have a whole laundry list of reasons why they should pick somebody else. He goes, hey, you, come follow me. If you give me your life, I will do more with your life. I will do more in you. I will do more through you. All the stuff you did before this ain't a thing for me. I'm Jesus. Uh, You, come follow me. I'll teach you the skills and education you have. Why don't we use it for something better? I'll give you more purpose. I'll give you more peace. We're going to go change the world come follow me. That's what he does. I get goosebumps every time I tell the story. It's the greatest story ever told. It's why I don't relate to Jesus, but I love Peter. Because if he chose that guy, he chooses me. I understand overlooked. I understand getting broken up with for the other boy. I understand not getting the promotion. I understand being the scrawny guy that nobody wants on the team. I get all that. Are you telling me Jesus would walk through the all-star team and be like, I want that guy? Yes. Well, if that's it, I want to follow that guy. And oh, by the way, they did more than anybody else who was following. We ain't talking about any other rabbi from 2,000 years ago in the Jewish rabbinical system. We are talking about Jesus. 
And this is what he does. And so if he did it to Peter, he's doing it to you. And I, if he was on the stage today, we could be, your part's done. If this is all you need, your part's done. He would stand on the stage and he would look you in the eye and goes, I know your story and I know what everybody else has said, but I choose you. I pick you, you. If you give me your life, come follow me. I'll do more with your life than you could ever imagine. It's the invitation to every human on the planet because every human on the planet has the image of God in them and Jesus loves to pull the image of God out and maximize it in a way that you could not on your own. It's the greatest story ever told. So it's how Peter's story starts. So now Peter starts following Jesus. I'm gonna spoil this for you. <laughs> Jesus only gets three years and he dies at the end, okay? So that's where we're going with this. So they don't get, I know, like what? Uh, we tell this story every year. So um, they didn't get 30, they didn't get 15 years, they got three years. And so Peter and this group of misfits start following Jesus. And all of a sudden it's like, what's our, I can't believe. I can't believe he chose us. I can't believe Jesus is here. I can't believe, I can't believe had to come out of their mouths so many times. They're like, I can't believe we just saw what we saw. Early on, Jesus starts doing all kinds of miracles. He makes a hand grow out. There's this guy who doesn't have a hand and it's a Sabbath day. And all of a sudden Jesus speaks to it and the hand shows up and the religious people get mad. And Jesus, they're like, what just happened? On another occasion, they, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a house that Jesus is teaching in and they're packing it in, but these, uh, one guy is lame, he can't walk, and his four um, friends really wanted to help him. So they go up on the roof, tear the roof off, lower him down, and his, and his four homies just drop him in front of Jesus. And, uh, and, and, Jesus is, and, and, Jesus, and they expect him, he's like, well, what do you want? He's like, I wanna walk. And he doesn't say, hey, get up and walk. You know what he says? Your sins are forgiven. <gasps> Only God can do that. I can't believe he just said that. He goes, and oh, by the way, you can get up and walk. They saw so many things, but they didn't just see it for them and their people. There was one time where Jesus went to the other side of the lake, the other side of the river where the, the other side, the other team, the Canaanites, the enemy was. And instead of there being a welcome party, the only person he met was a, a crazy man who was demon possessed. And, and rather than be afraid, the disciples are like, what are we doing over here? I can only imagine what it's like being Peter. They watched Jesus cast the demons out of this man. They go into a pig, fall off a cliff with that something. They get a front row seat to all this. And then the demon possessed man is like, hey, I beg you, let me come back with you. And, the, and Jesus was like, no, don't follow me. Wait, wh what? He says, go back into the town and just tell everybody what I did. What they didn't know, but Jesus did. If you read Mark four through eight, two weeks later, Jesus was planning on coming back. But he needed somebody to be a voice for him because they didn't trust rabbis from the other side. You with me? So Jesus comes back and he leads a whole bunch of them to follow him. And, he, and all of a sudden he starts this movement, this revolution that God didn't just come for the Jews and the Israel. He might've actually came for every side. Peter got to watch this. Peter watches him spit on mud and heal a blind guy, crazy. But here's the cool part for Peter and some of the disciples. They didn't just watch for th three years, Jesus do the miraculous. Jesus included him in on it. One time Jesus showed up, he got off a boat and a crowd of about 20,000 people showed up. It says 5,000, but that was just the men. And before Jesus starts to teach them, he's concerned about their, their food. And so he tells the disciples, like, guys, what are we gonna do? We gotta feed these guys. And these dummies, they're like trying to do math. Like, I don't know, like it'd take a half a year to feed them one bite. Like, and Jesus is like, hey, watch this. And so Jesus takes this little boy's, he's got a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. And he starts, he prays over it, he blesses it, he does this miracle, he breaks it. And he starts giving it to the disciples. He's like, you just keep feeding people. And the more he breaks, the more it shows up and the more it breaks. And so the disciples, but Jesus didn't feed one person. You know what Jesus did? Jesus did the miracle, and then he said, here, you go feed the people. That's how Christianity works, by the way. Jesus does the miracle, and then he says, now you go feed the people. I'll do the miracle, you feed the people. And so he gives, he gives them, they just like, they're handing out bread and, 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 and fish like they're Oprah. You get a piece, and you get a piece, and you get a piece, and you get a piece. And they have a bunch left over. 
But now Peter's not just watching. He's like, dude, that was awesome. And it's funny if you read it right afterwards, they get in an argument about which of them is the best. Jesus did all the work. These guys are clowns, I'm telling you. Read it, look it up. They have that argument on several occasions in four books, by the way. But the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the one that just is crazy to me is one night they'd been doing ministry. Jesus said, I need to get away and pray. Told them, hey guys, get in the boat, go to the other side. Four of the, 12 were fishermen, by the way. Yeah, they get in the boat, go across the sea, and a terrible storm comes up. It's dark, they're freaking out, and Jesus decided to pull the greatest like April Fool's prank on them ever. Because they're in the middle of the storm, and he walks on the water to them, like you do. And these boys, ah, it's a ghost. I mean, if you want to see, like, it's just funny to watch tough teenage boys get real scared, like things change real fast. And, they, and, they, and, they, and Jesus, and immediately, I love his response. Immediately, he's like, hey, 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 don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. See, when you're afraid and you invite Jesus into that spot in your heart, the first thing he speaks to is the fear in your life. Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. I'm here. You don't have to be afraid. I'm here. I don't know what you're going through right now, but you don't have to be afraid because Jesus is right there. And he, says, he says, don't be afraid. And they recognize a voice. And I never understood this, but based on what I just told you, now I get it. Because Peter's response is so crazy to this. This is in Matthew chapter uh, 14, I believe. He says, Peter's response is, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water? Jesus walking on water makes sense to me. Peter walking on water doesn't make sense to me. Except a rabbi would only choose a student under the premise, do I believe that this student can be exactly like me? So Peter, back to the beginning, Jesus never would have picked me if I couldn't do what he does. So if Jesus is on the water, all right, Jesus, if it's you, you tell me to come out there. And guess what? Peter jumped about six feet down in the water and he walked on water. One of the greatest moments of his life. And this is why we're all Peter. Because within seconds, he gets distracted Jesus is right there. He's doing the greatest feat by any human not named God. And he starts looking at the wind and the waves and all the craziness and he starts to sink. But he screams, Lord, help me, right? And Jesus pulls him back up, which tells us he didn't lose faith in Jesus, right? Why? You know that when he sunk, he didn't lose faith in Jesus. Can we just clear this up? Two reasons. Jesus wasn't sinking and you don't ask help from somebody else who's drowning. He lost, he forgot that he could be who Jesus said he could be. He lost faith in, in God's ability through him. And oh, by the way, they got back to the boat. Somehow you figure out how you think they got back. I doubt Jesus gave him a piggyback ride. <laughs> so you got this guy who on one moment rocks on water, the next minute he sinks. The, probably the greatest moment of Peter's life is a couple chapters later, Matthew 16. They're having a conversation. Jesus has said some tough stuff. He's like, I'm about to go. And then he asked Peter, like, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are Messiah. You are the Christ and he's like, you nailed it. And then Jesus says the craziest thing to Peter. And his response, he says, that's right. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The same guy who fell in the water, the same guy who sank, the same guy who argued over who was the greatest, the same guy who was regularly getting in, into trouble. Jesus looks at him and says, I'm gonna start this thing called the church and you're gonna be the, the cornerstone of it. This is what Jesus is gonna do through Peter. That's crazy enough. What's crazier to me is what happens five verses later. Because you're like, I mean, if I'm Peter, I'm like, 
I'm Jesus's guy. Like we're doing this, right? And then Jesus proceeds to go, and you need to know this because I'm about to go suffer a whole bunch of things at the hands of the religious leaders, to which Peter's like, I'll never let that happen. I'm a loyalist. I added the loyalist part. But he tries to tell Jesus how it's gonna go. And almost in the same breath where Jesus tells Peter, you're the one, you're gonna start the church, Peter overreacts. And then Jesus says this, get behind me, Satan. In the same conversation, Jesus says, you're gonna start the church, get behind me, Satan. Well, which is it? See, that's the beauty of following Jesus. It's both. It's both. Because with Peter, there was all kinds of room for mistakes. Jesus never got hung up on whether he was falling or walking on water. He never got hung up on who gave how many pieces of bread. He never got hung up because he knew what he was gonna do. And here's what he told him. He goes, you're a stumbling block to me. I hope Jesus never says that to me. Hey, by the way, Corey, you're a stumbling block to me. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What he was showing Peter was, I know what I'm doing. But Peter's the same guy, same guy. I'm gonna build the church. You're Satan in the same breath. That gives me so much hope as a disciple because I feel like I have moments where I'm like, God, I think you're proud of me. And then I'm like, what am I doing? And if that's you, you might be more like Peter than you thought, and God might have bigger and better plans because Peter's story is not over. Now we got to fast forward to the last day of Jesus' life, which is Peter's worst. I'm going to go really quick through this. Here's how it goes. Jesus knows the next day he's going to get tried and crucified. The disciples don't know. So it starts, Jesus says, go find us a room. We're going to have an, a, a last meal. You can find this in John 13, Matthew 26. You can find it in the Gospels. Different details. Peter, they, they get the upper room, and Jesus decides, before I feed him, I'm going to wash their feet. So Peter has like double classic overreaction mode. Like Jesus like, I'm gonna wash your feet. Peter's like, what are you doing? You'll never wash my feet. Let me wash yours. And he's like, Peter, chill. He's like, I gotta do this. And he's like, well, fine. If you're gonna wash me, then wash my whole body. He's like, Peter, chill. You don't need to wash your whole body. I just need to wash your feet. He goes, because uh, just your feet are dirty, but the rest of you is clean. But then he goes, but not all of you, because in a minute we're gonna have dinner and one of you is gonna betray me. And now all of a sudden they're all like, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? So now they have this meal and Jesus says, hey, um, he dips the bread in the wine. He says, this bread represents my body that's broken. My, my, this wine represents my blood that's about to be shed for the remission, for the, for the penalty of all sins, all, of all humankind. And, and he says, whoever I give it to first is the one that's gonna betray me and he gives it to Judas. And if I'm Peter, I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Probably like, I knew it, I knew it, I snake. But, just moments later, they're like, how could he? And then Jesus is like, oh, don't worry. It's gonna get really bad for me in a minute and you're all gonna leave me. To which Peter's like, I'll never, classic overreaction number three, same meal. I'll never, I know Jesus, I'll go anywhere for you. He's like, actually, Peter, since you brought it up, you're about to deny me three times and you'll do it right at the end of it. You'll hear a rooster crow. Peter's like, that'll never happen. He's like, okay, cool. Then let's go pray. They go to the garden to pray. Jesus is like, this is the most important night of my life. Can you pray with me? They're like, no problem. They fall asleep three times at a prayer meeting with Jesus. If Jesus ever invites you to a prayer meeting, don't fall asleep. <laughs> and it's three times. Jesus is like, seriously, guys? They're like, we're so tired. Well, the third time, they come to arrest Jesus. Jesus is like, this is what I predicted was gonna happen. Peter loses his mind. He's like, we gotta do something. And he grabs a sword and cuts off, not an armed guy's ear, but the servants of the high priest, chop, which is, if you know the history, is a total cheap shot move. That guy wasn't armed. He's like the guy in a fight. He's like, no, 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 yes. You know what I mean? Like, that's what Peter does. 
in which Jesus is like, Peter, put the sword, sorry guys, it's Peter, and he puts the ear back on the guy. <laughs> We're all Peter, right? And if you don't think you are, like, just be honest with yourself, really. <laughs> well, then Jesus gets arrested, and here's how it went in those days. Jesus was arrested because he was a threat to the temple and he was a threat to Rome. And they hated each other. Rome and the temple were opposite enemies, but they had one common enemy, Jesus, because he was overthrowing the temple and Rome was, thought he was against them. So they were pitting it against this fascinating historical thing I don't have time to get into. But in those days, if you were a leader and you were to be tried and crucified, guess what happened to all your students and disciples? Tried and crucified. It had happened many, many times. There's all kinds of literature about it. So as soon as Jesus gets arrested, the other 11, what do you think they do? Bolt. They're all gone, bunch of sissies, bunch of cowards. Jesus gets arrested, gets tried, but he stays close enough to see what's going on. And not once, not twice, but three times, somebody, somebody's servant girl comes and says, hey, are, didn't you used to follow Jesus once? I saw you with him. No, I told you I don't know the man. Somebody else comes up to him. Hey, aren't you a Jesus follower? You're one of his disciples. I thought I saw you. No, I told you I don't know the man. And then finally, somebody else is like, no, no, you, you sound like him. I know you were with Jesus. I told you I don't know him. Right afterwards, the rooster goes off. So he overreacted at the foot washing. He overreacted at dinner. He cut off a guy's ear. He fell asleep in a prayer meeting. He completely left the only person who ever said, I see the best in you. I want to pull it out. You can be like me. That was a really, really bad day for Peter. At that point, Peter's got to be going, I can't believe it. I can't believe he chose me. I can't believe I saw what I saw. I can't believe he included me. I can't believe after every shot, he did more for me. After every mistake, I probably blew it more than every disciple and he still was patient. I can't believe that I did this. I can't believe I disowned him. I can't believe I cared more about my own life. I can't believe after, I've been following Jesus longer than ever before. Somebody needs to hear this. Jesus had never followed, Peter had never followed Jesus longer and had his worst day of his life. How's that for a theology? Peter had never followed Jesus longer and had the worst day of his life. I would imagine he felt something like this. I can't believe he chose me, me. When Jesus first started to talk to me, I looked over my shoulder because there was no way he was talking to me. But to my shock, he was. And I will never forget it. He looked right at me and told me things that were not even possible. I was a fisherman. There was no reason for any rabbi to ever even speak to me. And yet, he spoke to me. He looked at me and saw something in me. It was like he was looking deep inside of me, and yet I felt peace. I felt drawn. I felt crazy to even entertain the possibility of leaving all I knew to follow a rabbi I didn't even know. Who does that? Fishing. That was what I did. That's who I was. The words he was saying to me and the path he was inviting me on were just so impossible to believe. He knew something I didn't know. He saw something I didn't see. There was something in my heart that led me to silence the violent objections in my mind. I went. I followed. I left everything I knew to follow a rabbi I didn't even know. I still can't believe I did that. And when I left my fellow fishermen, I joined another ragtag group of misfits. What should I have expected? He had chosen me after all. Did I somehow expect him to choose other people that somehow made sense? 
He definitely picked an interesting and unlikely group of us. Somehow we became brothers. We tried to figure out why we were chosen. We were constantly trying to figure out who he was. What was he all about? What made him so different? What made us willing to drop everything to follow him? We were always jockeying for position with him, trying to be his favorite, trying to get on his good side, trying to be one step ahead of the others. That competition was constant and sometimes it got fierce. That tension was so palpable the night when Jesus told us that one of us would betray him. Betray him? Who? Show me him. Jesus stunned us with that prediction. I don't think any of us looked into our own hearts to see if we were the one capable or we were the one that he was referring to. We all scanned the table to try to identify the snake, the betrayer. I can't even begin to tell you the relief when he revealed that Judas was the one. Of course Judas was the one. Judas would be the one to betray our Messiah. What a snake. The relief I felt was short-lived though. Later that same night, Jesus looked at us and said, tonight, all of you will desert me. All of us? Me? No way. I couldn't scan the room to find the guilty one this time. According to Jesus, I was guilty. I was forced to look into my own heart. I mean, I knew I was weak. I knew I didn't have what it took. I knew I could not believe. I was terrified. I resorted to the only thing I knew to do. I argued with him. I did everything I could to convince him I was loyal. I was committed. I was not a traitor. He didn't budge. He looked at me with the same kindness as always, but he was unwavering in his stance. His lack of reaction and silence were like fuel to the fear I felt within. And then he spoke. I got my hopes up for a moment, but I quickly wished he had remained silent. He told me that I would not deny him once, not twice, but three times. I got mad. I got desperate. My ability to convince people and sell them even when I knew it was untrue had always worked, and somehow not now. Each argument fell pitifully to the ground with no power to change a thing. Could he possibly be right? Could I possibly have that kind of weakness inside of me? Me, denied Jesus, really, three times? I was shocked. I was devastated. Worst of all, his prediction came true far too quickly. Three times. How could I not stop myself after the first time? Or at least after the second? All I heard was his voice in my head. All I saw was his peaceful, firm, and kind demeanor in my mind's eyes. How could I betray him? But I did it. I denied him three times. And then the rooster. He somehow even knew that detail the rooster crowed right after the third time. One thing was sure, when I first met him, I told myself I wasn't worthy of believing. I guess I was right. I guess he was right. I can't believe. The last day Peter was with Jesus was easily Peter's worst day. Full of regret, full of failure, and he knew Jesus. He had been following Jesus. So much he couldn't believe. Maybe you're here and you have a hard time believing in this God story. Maybe you're here and you have a hard time believing, I can't believe the things I've done. Let me encourage you with this. Peter's story started with 
Nobody wanting Peter. He had probably as many lowlights as he had highlights. And his last moments with Jesus were his worst. But two things never stopped being true. Jesus chose Peter. And Peter chose Jesus back. And at this part of the story, it looks really, really bleak. But here's what I can tell you. This is just week one. Today's Friday. Sunday's coming. This was the worst day of Peter's life at that point. But it didn't have to be. In fact, Peter's best days, his most proud days, were still in front of him. In a way, we're all Peter. We know what it's like to be overlooked, picked over. We know what it's like to have personality and character traits that are a liability. We've made plenty of mistakes. And just like Peter, Jesus chooses you. Even if you've lived a season like Peter did of doing something else, of not being good enough, of maybe you even followed Jesus at one time and it didn't work out for probably a lot of valid reasons. Jesus would say to you today, come, follow me. He wouldn't rub your mistakes in your face. He wouldn't remind you of how many times you kept the bread to yourself and fell in the water and argued with the boys and denied him. In fact, you're gonna love the end of this story in a couple of weeks because it was in front of him. And if you're in that spot, I want you to know that today there's an invitation. Jesus is saying, come, follow me. Here's what I wanna tell you. The decision to follow Jesus isn't a one-time decision. It's a daily decision. Every day the disciples had to get up and go, I'm gonna keep following him. So for some of you, maybe you're here, you're watching, and at one point you made this decision. Well, I'm gonna say a simple prayer and invite you to just say it in your heart with me. And maybe you need to say, Jesus, I'm gonna start following you again. Maybe some of you are are doing your best and you need to say, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you again. Some of you maybe for the first time ever saying, this is what I need. If if, if everything that crazy, crazy guy just said is true, I'll follow Jesus. If he'll give me his spirit, if he'll do that, if he'll pick those people, have that kind of patience, do for them what, what they couldn't do for themselves, if he'll do that for me, I'm in. And so I'm just gonna say a simple prayer and I'm not gonna ask anybody to pray it out loud, but just in your heart or in your mind, I'm gonna give you space to say that, what I just told you, inviting him to say, Jesus, I wanna follow you and allow him to clean up the mess. Because the only thing that might've been worse for Peter on Friday was Saturday. We'll get to that next week. But I wanna encourage you with this. Sunday was coming. And for you, Sunday's coming. You just need to say yes to Jesus. Will you pray with me? If you wanna just say your own version of this prayer in your heart, just join me. Heavenly Father, thank you for being like you are, for sending Jesus. And I believe that you choose me. I wanna follow you. I wanna choose you back. Forgive me my mistakes. Thank you for not holding them against me. I believe you have better for me than I'm experiencing now. So I give you my life. Do in me what only you can do. And do for me what only you can do. I'll stop following other ways. I need what you have. In Jesus' name, amen.